Hello and welcome to Montgomery Talk, Montgomery Community Media's new podcast from our studios in Rockville. I'm Doug Tolman, senior reporter at MCM, and today I'm talking with Bob Levy, retired columnist for the Washington Post and a keen observer of Montgomery County politics. He's also written a book, which we'll get to in a minute. Um, and just to go over your, your bio, you said you spent 37 years at the Post. Almost 37, and uh, let me just challenge one thing you said, Doug. I, you're never a retired columnist. That's like being a retired Marine, which you also can't be. I'm afraid I got the Kool-Aid deep in my veins. I still walk around and I say, you know, that would be a great column. That would be an even better one. So uh, I will accept the idea that I don't do them for the post every day anymore, but retired, uh uh-uh. Then if you're not retired, then they ought to be published. They Correct? used to be. They, a lot of them used to be, okay. but uh, my, my later ideas, not so often. Okay. All right. So every person who's ever worked for a newspaper has got some great stories about what the newsroom was like. And I would want to kick off by asking if you had any, any stories you'd like to share. Only about 4,000, but I'll share a couple of them. I was very lucky during my time at the Washington Post for several reasons. Uh, one is that I was the first reporter hired by the legendary Ben Bradley by the sheerest chance. And then by the sheerest chance, I sat right between Bob Woodward and Carl Bernstein for all three years of Watergate. Just an amazing bird's eye view of one of the greatest moments in the history of journalism. Now, before you ask me, Doug, I am not in the movie. Before you ask me again, I should be in the movie. And if I were in the movie, uh, by the way, they're thinking of a remake, so there's hope here. But if, if I were in the movie, maybe Brad Pitt this time, right, I would have one line because every day during Watergate for three years, armadas of editors would descend on where we were sitting and they would look over Bob and Carl's shoulder and say, what do you got for tomorrow? What do you got? What do you got? What do you got? And there I am in between them working on something that had nothing to do with Watergate. So I'm going to thrill you and your listeners by giving you the one line that I should have had in the movie. And here it is, turning around. Would you guys please go somewhere else so I can get some work done? Somehow I never got to utter that on the silver screen. Our loss, obviously. Our loss, yeah. Yeah. Lots of other stories. I could go on and on. Uh, The culture at the Post when I started was completely different from what it is now. Uh, There were a lot of people who thought that drinking your dinner was a real good idea, that bourbon was one of the seven basic food groups. And that has changed somewhat. Uh, The the demands of the business are so great and so nonstop that I don't think anybody drinks anything anymore except what I have in my right hand, which is coffee. That's the secret to everything. Mm-hmm. So, um, <clears throat> with so thirty-seven years of the Post, twenty-four years as a columnist, what was the, your favorite story you ever wrote? Oh, I get that all the time, and I just wish that I could isolate one column that I like the best. But I think the column that I will always remember had to do with taking a walk right after my wife and I moved because she was expecting our oldest child and here we are in this new neighborhood in montgomery county and i'm walking the dog and the uh the president was gerald ford and right near the end of the ford administration he negotiated the anti-ballistic missile treaty with the russians a very big day and i'm walking a dog and it's a nice night and it's in the winter and i meet this guy i pass this other guy my neighbor walking a dog and 
and I walk up to him and I say, hi, what do you think about this news about the anti-ballistic missile treaty? And the guy looks at me and he says, I wrote it. Welcome to Washington. You won't have that happen in Dubuque, Iowa. So, of course, I wrote that. And, of course, it was sort of the essential Washington moment, you know, where local things and local people play on a much larger stage. I'm always going to be very proud of that column. And, by the way, the dogs got along with each other. Well, that's good. Okay. So, um, one thing before we get into politics... Yesterday, Time Magazine um, released its Person of the Year. Yes. Um, and um, their Person of the Year were the journalists who have been killed or imprisoned in the past year. And included among that honor were uh, the five who died at the Annapolis Capitol. Um, when you started your career, was there any thought that journalism was dangerous? No, but journalism has always been contentious. And I've been yelled at. I've been threatened. I've had weapons pulled on me. I've had a million doors slammed in my face. No one has, <clears throat> excuse me, ever threatened to kill me, but certainly that danger is always there and always has been there. The difference now is that the temperature has risen, and the difference now is that actual people are running around making actual threats, very often live and in color on television, to reporters. And I'm going to predict right here and now that at some political rally very soon, somebody is going to kill a reporter. And that will be a very, very dark day in our history. Yes, it's happened. Yes, it happened at the Annapolis Capitol. Yes, it happened to Khashoggi. Yes, it has happened to journalists around the world. But very rarely has it happened because a politician has cooked up the temperature right then and there. That's what's going to change it, and I'm afraid that's going to happen. So what, what do you think your, the state of community journalism is today? Well, there isn't as much as there used to be for economic reasons. Uh, the, the good news is that reporters get paid. The bad news is that they expect to get paid, and the ad base simply will not support community journalism the way it once did. I think that's a tremendous opportunity for somebody somebody <clears throat> who uh, can find a way to attract the right kind of advertising support is going to uh, light a fire under community journalism in all the right way. These are great stories. <clears throat> These are the stories that need to be told, and uh, they're not getting told. Um, I'm going to take a 30-second break to uh, brag a little bit. Um, in my former life, I was the editor of the Gazette, and in, during the last election, we interviewed all 200 candidates um, f to do endorsement interviews. Mm -hmm. um, at the same time, I think the Post did one of their interviews just based on um, scanning the websites of uh, the, 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 the candidates. And, I mean, what role does the Washington Post play in local elections? A very big role, but not as big as it once did. The trouble is that the Post has to serve so many masters, Doug, <clears throat> that it cannot do what the Gazette did. The Post is the dominant newspaper in the District of Columbia. It is the largest circulation newspaper in the state of Virginia. And it is the largest circulation newspaper in the state of Maryland. You can't publish three newspapers at the same time. All you can do is fold all three into one. And I cannot tell you how many times in my reporting career I would be in Annapolis and people would come up to me and say, what's the matter with you guys down there in the Post? You give all this ink to everybody in Virginia. And then the next week you're down in Richmond and some guy will come up to you and say, what's the matter with you guys? You give all this ink to those people in Maryland. 
And both are right and both are wrong. So it's not in some ways a fair comparison because the Post could never interview 200 candidates because, among other things, it would have to interview many more than 200. It would have to interview 1,000, and then it wouldn't have the space to publish the results. So community journalism focused on the community has a great role, but the Post does that only in a 30,000-foot sort of way. Hmm. And what was your thought when uh, Jeff Bezos uh, unloaded the Gazette? <laughs> I was very sorry to see it. Uh, I don't know why he did it. I think it should be here. I hope that something will take its place someday. I hope that if you and I want to scrape together two nickels, we could do that maybe. But uh, it'll have to be your two nickels because I don't have any nickels. <laughs> <laughs> I, I might have one at one, the bottom. All right. in all the, right. I'll check the sofa cushions. Um, Let's, uh, let's talk politics then, sure. um, since we were talking about uh, uh, candidates. Um, 2018 was awfully strange for Montgomery County. Um, and so as a politi- politically astute observer, um, what did you think of 38 people running in the Democratic primary for the four at-large seats in the county council? Well, I thought in some ways that I was surprised it wasn't 138 because how many times do you get that many open seats at once? And how many times do you get the kinds of candidates we got in 2018? Some of the people who lost would have won in any other year and should have won in any other year, and they finished way down the track. I think that's a sign of health in this county. I think it'll be a sign of health uh, as we go on, but it certainly looked daunting to an awful lot of voters and particularly to young voters who took one look at this ballot and said, oh my gosh, you know, I don't know who any of these people are. And so I just either won't vote or I won't vote for all the ones that I could vote for. The turnout, as you know, in 2018 was unusually good, but if you dice that a little bit, the number of people who voted for every box that they could check was actually down a little bit for the reason that I said. Well, we pat ourselves on the back for a 60% uh, voter turnout and in any other, in any other uh, endeavor, that's a D. Well, that's a D until you go to some parts of the United States where 60% would be an Olympic and world record. Uh, it it, isn't, it is, was good here. That was not our best shot, but it, it's pretty good. And you know, the day, on election day, as I stood in line for one hour and 40 minutes in the rain, I'm going to thump my chest a little here. Did I win the merit badge for doing that? Uh, that's a long time. People were really excited and people were really eager to vote for somebody and not just against somebody. So, of course, if I'm waiting in line, Doug, for an hour and 40 minutes, I got to interview everybody who's around me, and I did that, and that's what they all said. Oh, yeah, 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 this is a referendum on Donald Trump in some way, but I really look at this as a, a chance to put my thumb on the scale of what Montgomery County ought to be. And these people were aware of the issues and voted on the issues. Um. Now, David Blair lost the Democratic primary by only 70-some votes. Right. Um, Mark Elrich, of course, won his general race, the general election race, with 65%. Right. Um, putting those two things together, do you think Mark Elrich has a, um, has a mandate for running the county? Well, sure. I think in the general election, he got way, way more support than even he thought he was going to get. Uh, 
I thought Nancy Florine would do much, much better. I remain a little surprised that she didn't do better. And I think Elrich will respond to the job. My concern about him has always been, and still is, that he has zero relationship with Larry Hogan. Zero. They come from two different worlds. And how well these two people get along, and if they even communicate with one another, and if Elrich is willing to do what a Doug Duncan did, and that is to get over to Annapolis all the time and build relationships with the governor, Elrich has got to do this because this is by far the largest jurisdiction in the state of Maryland. It's the economic driver of the state of Maryland. Hogan, amazingly to me anyway, got 45% of the vote in Montgomery County. There's a yawning gap here that says you two guys really ought to be talking to each other. And let's see if it happens. Uh, And let's see, even if it does happen, whether they're talking past each other or to each other. Hmm. Speaking of uh, uh, Larry Hogan, um, Kathleen Matthews lost her job, um, one would assume, because Larry Hogan was reelected. That's right. Do you think that's fair? I think that's baseball. I think that happens in baseball and politics all the time. You know, when the manager gets fired by the Baltimore Orioles, he didn't strike out 500 times. One of his no-good players struck out. (laughs) However, guess who gets fired? It's the same thing in politics. I think that's what happened to Kathleen. Okay. Um, Do you think her political career is over, or do you think she's going to show up somewhere else? No, no. For the best reason of all, and that's that she's known and that she's rich. That's a tough combination to beat, and David Trone just proved that, and a lot of other politicians have proven that. It's not over at all. She's going to have to decide how to go forward. And she may decide that she will try to pay her dues a little bit and and run on a local level. That wouldn't surprise me. Remember that there are going to be more and more positions turning over in Montgomery County uh, in a short four years. And... uh, uh, if you're about to ask me whether Elrich is a cinch for a second or a third term, I don't think he is at all. I think the line will start forming on the right in about 18 months or two years because, you know, his performance in the primary was so low compared to what he did in the general election. And if he does not succeed in some of the ways that he thinks he should succeed, job growth and school improvement and bridging the gap of minority performance in the schools, he's going to be primaried by a lot of people, and she might be one of them. Hmm. Okay. seems like now is a good time to take a quick break. Um, my name is Doug Tallman. I'm senior reporter at Montgomery Community Media, and I'm talking with um, um, former and current columnist um, Bob Levy, and we'll be back in just a short while. MCM, your community media center, is making Montgomery County a great place to live through programs like 21 This Week. Montgomery County's hardest-hitting political talk show keeps you up to date with the local political scene. Montgomery Community Media. Our middle name is Community. And we're back with um, Montgomery Talk. Um, I'm Doug Tallman, senior reporter with Montgomery Community Media, and I'm speaking with um, Bob Levy, former columnist, current columnist. 
<laughs> with the Washington Post, and um, and uh, he's just come out with a book, which we'll talk about in just a minute or two. But the first thing I want to ask him is something that I've asked other people who have. Um, I asked Nancy Navarro last week, and I've asked other people just on the street. Um, Montgomery County prides itself on its um, progressive politics, and yet we have only a single woman on the county council, which strikes me as a bit, strikes me as, uh, there's a disconnect there. Now, granted, we have, um, I believe it's 13 women of the, uh, the number escapes me, um, who serve in the House of Delegates for the county. Um, we have three women of the eight are um, serving in the state senate. Um, we have an all-female school board, but um, with so many services um, being routed through the county council, it seems um, like there's something wrong when only one woman is on that board. Well, you're right in one way, and I think you're wrong in another, Doug. Uh, certainly the county council is where the big action is. The budget is $5.5 billion. This is a big, big place, this place, Montgomery County. And I think that what the voters have said here is that they want a certain kind of candidate with a certain kind of outlook. And on the one hand, I would like to see more women on the council. I voted for some who didn't make it. On the other hand, uh, I don't think you need to do a gender test of who's serving. I don't think that's the best way to evaluate who's good at this job. I think in some ways this is an accident. And I think in other ways it will correct itself naturally as it has before. What you didn't say in your intro is that there used to be a lot more women than this on the council, and there have been for, gee, I don't know, 30 years or so. Haven't there been at least three for 30 years? Something like that. So these are cycles. This is not some enormous uh, statement about how inferior women are at all. I think it's just that there happened to be some outstanding young male candidates this time. They got elected. They may be there a long time, but the natural turnover, I think, will bring women in the door. Okay. Well, I'm trying to see what I remember. As I recall, maybe Nancy Dasick, um, Nancy Florine, excuse me, was it Nancy Dasick? Miss Dasick. Um, Nancy Florine and Marilyn Praisner might have served together for about a term, and then it was uh, Nancy Florine and Marilyn Praisner alone after uh, Dasick lost to... Uh, Mike Knapp, I believe. That's right. And then um, Praisner went off. Her husband came on board. Um, he went off, and then he was replaced by Nancy um, Navarro. So there were there was a term or two with Nancy Navarro and Nancy Florine, and now we're down to one. So, I mean, I that's how the extent of my memory. So I don't go be, before. But, uh, let's dice it up a little more here. You know, we have a majority of the voters in this county are female. And yet this result happened on the county council. That says to me that female voters do not in lockstep vote for female candidates. And I wish you could have been in my house in 2016 when my wife and daughter threw a tantrum at me when I said, well, of course you ladies are going to vote for Hillary Clinton because she's female. And my wife and daughter had a fit. Well, why should we vote for somebody just because she's female? We would never do that. Do you vote for somebody just because he's a man? And I don't, of course. So I don't think you can assume that this identity politics goes to gender. Well, I, it's not that I expect women to vote for women. It's that I expect progressives to vote for women. You know, I expect um, some people to look at, um, 
you know, I, I think a lot of voters look at a county council like they would pick members of their basketball team. Um, and they, they don't always want to have everybody who would be marching in lockstep on a certain issue. Um, they may want to say, hey, look, I want somebody who's good on the budget. I want somebody who's good with um, health and human services. I want somebody who's going to be good on um, recreation, et cetera. And, um, and I think they probably take in gender when they think about the five Maybe, people they get to vote for. But what I would say to you is that they got that. They got that even though they got men. Okay. All right. That's your okay. Good. <laughs> All right. So let's let's talk about this book. It's uh, Larry Felder candidate. That's it. Um, now, um, my first question, of course, is it's about a former newspaper columnist who decides to run for office, and I'm looking straight at a former newspaper <laughs> columnist, and I'm wondering if this isn't um, some sort of manifesto no, on how no, you're going to... No, everybody asks me whether I am Larry Felder. Let me sharpen that up a little bit. Not only does Larry Felder run for office in the book, he runs for Congress in the 8th District of Maryland, where we are sitting right this minute. Everybody wants to know two things. Uh, Bob Levy, are you Larry Felder, and is Larry Felder you? And the answer to that is no. Larry, There's a little dash of me in Larry Felder, but he's really modeled more after the famous political reporters that I grew up with at the Washington Post during my years there, the names like David Broder and names like Haynes Johnson, those kind of guys. And everybody also wants to know whether I'm running for Congress. And... <laughs> That's the easiest question I've ever been asked. No, no, a thousand times no, and I'm not running for anything else either. I ran for the student council in the sixth grade, Doug, and I lost, and that was such a crushing blow that I've never run for any political office again. So this is a novel that is conjured up out of my imagination, but also out of my experience. If it's possible for a novel to be as realistic as today, this novel is. It's based in scenes you know, people you know. It is so Montgomery County, it's almost silly. I mean, the, the opening scene is at the Hyatt Regency Bethesda. There's an important scene in a parking lot in Silver Spring. There's a gated community in Potomac. And this is my favorite for the real Montgomery County geeks out there. There is a styrofoam coffee cup from Dunkin' Donuts at Montgomery Mall blowing down the street in one scene. And if that's not true blue Montgomery, I don't know what is. So, so how long did it take you to think up the book? Thinking up the book was years. Really concentrating on it was a couple of months where I would uh, be in the shower where I do all my best work and I'm working on my elbow and saying, well, I wonder if I should do this. And working on my other elbow than that. And writing is not the problem. I mean, I've written more words than anybody you've ever seen in your life. I, millions and millions. I'm like McDonald's, you know, many, many millions served. And people just gasp when I say this, but I wrote this entire 81,000-word book in less than a week. I just sat down and did it. Because, and if there are any would-be writers out there, this is where the real work is, is before you sit down. you got to conceive it and hold it in your head and make sure that the transitions work and the forward motion works. So I had no trouble writing it in less than a week, and then came the rewriting. And that took a long time because I asked some people to read it and they all had comments and I tried to incorporate the comments. I think I rewrote the last fifth of this book five times. 
and that's that took a lot longer than a week. So all from start to finish, maybe a year, something like that. So, um, and how can people get this book? BobLevyPublishing.com is my sales website. It's very fancy. <laughs> it's got my photo on it. It's got Larry Felder's photo on it, and it has ordering instructions on it. Bob, L-E-V-E-Y, publishing.com. And as we used to say when I was a kid, operators are standing by. (laughs) And so uh, is there going to be a sequel? I'm working on it. And it has to do with no less than my radio life. Uh, I worked for nine radio stations in the Washington and Baltimore markets. And the sequel is about the takeover by a local radio station that is an awful lot like WMAL, where I worked for a long time by right-wing radio and by the Rush Limbaugh people and the tensions that are caused by that. And uh, then in the end, this young woman who works at the station and her morning anchor boyfriend uh, get together and save the station and fly the flag and W whatever it is, is returns to the glory days of yesteryear. Oh, wow. And there's no radio announcer running for Congress. In this he's book. not running, no, and uh, he's not me either, so we'll get that out of the way right it's, it's here. It's not an oeuvre you're going to try to get, work through all the books. It is not. And by the way, neither that book nor Larry Felder Candidate is an act of revenge. You know, a lot of novels are an act of revenge. Uh, the author's trying to get even with some girl who wouldn't go to the prom with him 30 years ago or even with his mother or something like that. Uh Uh-uh. These books that I'm working on are about love. I love journalism. I will always love the Washington Post. And I've got to say, I love living in Montgomery County. This is a tremendously interesting place, and I love it here. I will never live anywhere else. I've lived here for more than half my life. I'm true blue, just like Larry Felder and just like that styrofoam coffee cup. (laughs) So, um... What is your advice for the for the for writers on how to do this? I mean, what, what, suppose somebody else has a novel in their head that they want to turn into uh, print. I decided to self-publish this book for a lot of reasons that I won't bother to go into here. But my advice is know what you want to do and know how you want to get there, and that means. Do not do what all of my students always do, Doug, which is to say, oh, I'm going to write a book or I'm going to write a news story. And they just sit down and start writing and they say, well, I'll just see where I end up. Where you will end up is not having a book and where you will end up is having a really bad news story. I'm a big fan of organizing and planning ahead of time. And uh, I would do that for any kind of writing, but I would advise the writers you're talking about to plan, plan, plan and to drink a whole lot of coffee. That's the best advice I can give anybody about anything. Uh, Coffee has seen me through more deadlines and more uh, wickets that I never thought I could get through. Uh, I I really even miss the the coffee in the newsroom at the Washington Post, which was brewed in those old glass Pyrex pots, and they never cleaned the things. And this... (laughs) This sludge would form on the bottom. It was almost like the mud that forms on the bottom of the Chesapeake Bay, only and it might have been more more genetically active than that. And they never cleaned the pots, and the coffee had a certain taste, and it didn't matter because the coffee got you through. 
So any writer who either is addicted to coffee as I am or is addicted to something that will help him or her concentrate, that's what to do. Okay. All right. Once again, you can get the book where? BobLevyPublishing.com, and I'll spell it one more time, B-O-B-L-E-V-E-Y-Publishing.com. And, uh, yeah, operators are standing by. And guess who the chief fulfillment of orders officer is? You're looking at him, Doug. <laughs> okay. uh, the post office is sick of me by now. Oh, you're back. Oh, you got to mail some more. Oh, good. Okay. Well, you know, it, it's one of the prices you pay. Okay. All right. Well, I think that's a good time to say goodbye. I think we've covered everything. Um, I want to thank uh, Bob Levy for stopping by and for joining us on Montgomery Talk. I'm Doug Tallman, senior reporter with Montgomery Community Media. I'd also like to thank our engineer, Mike Valentine, who's been sitting by working the board. And we plan to be here next week when we'll be talking all things Montgomery on Montgomery Talk.